Welcome back to our series on the Bible Speaks. And in this series, we're talking about what does the Bible have to say and what does a Christian, a biblical worldview have to do with politics. And so I'm excited to get into this. We're kind of laying the foundation last lesson and this lesson, and then we're gonna dive into the weeds. But uh, before we start, let me say a prayer for us. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering. We are grateful for the freedoms that we have that sometimes we take for granted, but that we appreciate to be able to come together and reason, to study your word, to live out our Christian faith. Lord, I do pray for all those who are struggling with this pandemic. I pray for those in Afghanistan that are, uh, whose lives are threatened and whose lives have been turned upside down. And Lord, I pray for your presence, pray for healing in Christ's name, amen. Well, as is normal, there's the uh, number to text your questions during class, and I'll answer as many as we, as we can. But we are talking about politics, and specifically, what is a biblical way of thinking about uh, politics and Christian engagement in politics? And we had queued up a few questions. We may talk about some other things in addition to this, but for example, should the church and state be separate in public affairs. And in our last lesson, we kind of laid the foundation of the idea of separation of church and state. Uh, should Christians be involved in politics at all? That's actually, historically, people have disagreed about that. And today, Christians would very much be on very uh, far ends of that question. Should Christians be affiliated with a political party? And if so, that's actually pretty complicated. We're gonna talk about that next time. That's actually more nuanced than you would think and causes a lot of the heat and friction amongst Christians because if you're part of a political party, does, does that mean that you buy into everything of that political party? And if it doesn't, then why are you part of that party? So it's an interesting question that we need to navigate. And then finally, can Christians support an illegitimate government? And what does the Bible say a legitimate government is? So these are some of the questions that we're going to be talking about. And I thought first we do a, a really brief recap of the first questions. Can, does the church even have a role in the public square in politics. And we talked about, and this is a recap, in our last lesson we looked at Jesus' time. We'll go back to the, to the biblical times, we'll go back to Jesus, and we realize, number one, the world was every bit as political, every bit as divided as our world is today. And so sometimes you tend to think that things have never been this bad, but actually, throughout history, We've, there, there have been political tensions that have been even worse than today. And so Jesus was immersed in a political world, both a militaristic authoritarian government, but a very factional Jewish uh, parties and listed there some of the Jewish parties, political parties of the time. And so whether he liked it or not, just like you and me, whether we like it or not, we're going to operate in that political environment. So what was Jesus' approach? How did he do this? Well, we looked at our text for the last lesson. I mean, this is not the only text, but it was an example of the principle. And the principle was this. When they were trying to trap Jesus, he said this famous statement, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And we talked about how have Christians understood this through history. Some have said, well, that means church and state are totally separate. I mean, church would love to do some social justice, but man, that's the, that's the political realm. We're not involved. And of course, other Christians have said, you know, we should withdraw from that. Uh, and then others have said, no, we have an obligation to live out our faith in the world, and that means we need to engage this process. Well, Jesus engaged the political world because he was acting in the world. You could argue that from a Rome, well, you don't have to argue, this is just true. From a Roman point of view, he was killed for political reasons. From a Jewish point of view, Jesus was killed for religious and political reasons. So the, poli the political sphere is something Jesus worked in, but Jesus played a different game. And that was our lesson, is Jesus wasn't playing the same game. 
Christians do not share the same life view and goals as the secular society around them. Jesus is playing in the political world, but his goals were not the same as the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Roman governor. His goal, the game he was playing was very different. His goals were different. Secondly, he was subverting that system by playing a different game. It's not just that he, he wasn't standing on the sidelines, he was in the game, but he wasn't playing the same game. And consequently, that's always going to be subversive to the power structure that exists. That's why Christians throughout history have been persecuted. There have been time, for example, today, we're not persecuted much yet in America. But if you're a Christian in North Korea, you're a Christian in China, if you're a Christian in Afghanistan, you're struggling with persecution. My point is simply this. It's not like there was persecution by the Romans and by the Jews and then it all quit. Christians have experienced that all the time. Why? Christians aren't terrible citizens. Christians aren't nuking anybody. Christians weren't trying to overthrow the Roman government because you're playing a different game with different goals and your behavior is fundamentally subversive to political structures. And then finally, Christians use non-traditional means to affect change. We looked at how the game played out. When he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar, give to God what's God's. That happened in, let's call it 33 AD. By 313 AD, without anybody ever picking up a weapon, without Christians being part of any political party, Nobody got to vote in those days. 313 AD, the Roman Empire is Christian. How did he do that? He did it in very non-traditional means. And I think these are great guidelines for us. So I want you to think about it this way. So what I'd like to move into is the fact that we are playing a different game. We're playing on the same board, the same game board, we are part of the political world, the cultural environment of America for us, and Christians have always been playing out their faith, their life, their goals in the midst of the cultures in which they live, but we're not playing the same game. It's like if you sat down to play Monopoly, and you know, the other players in a game of Monopoly are trying to, hence the name, monopolize all the places on the board so that you have to pay them money when you land on it and you go out of business and they win because they drove everybody else out of business. Christians are like people playing Monopoly with the other players, except Christians aren't trying to drive people out of business. They're trying to make sure no one goes bankrupt. And so you're loaning money to people and you are giving things away. You're playing on the same game board, but you're not playing the same game. How long do you think it would take? Because your decisions are going to look really different, aren't they? You're going to look really different. How long do you think the other players are going to go, wait just a minute, right? And then what are they going to do? Well, they're going to crucify you, of course. But my point is that you're playing on the same game board, but you're not playing the same game. And so to cue up what I'd like to talk about in this lesson, I want to talk about what well, Okay, so that's a fact. We can see that in Jesus. We can see that for Christians throughout history. What then does the game we're playing look like? So we're playing in the culture. We're playing in this political world. The world is inherently political. How is it we go about playing the game? We're not playing by the same rules everybody else is. We're not trying to do the same thing everybody else is. What is it we are trying to do? So I want to tell you a story, this true story. So I used to run at the YMCA uh, indoor. And at the YMCA that, that I went to, they have indoor track, but posted on the wall when you come in is the rules for the track, the way you're supposed to walk or run on the track. And in this particular Y, on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're supposed to run clockwise. And on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday, you're supposed to run counterclockwise. No one could ever explain to me why. What are we wearing it out going this direction? We're not wearing it out. Okay, never mind. I, I still don't have an answer to that, but I accepted it. Those are the rules of the game. And so I go in. So I go in one day 
uh, early one morning, I get out there and I take off my jacket, put my water down, and there are people out there and I just sort of jump in and off I go. And so I'm going along, uh, running around. Well, I get, I don't know, a few laps into it. And all of a sudden I realize there may be 15 people, so there's, there's quite a few people going. And there's this one lady who uh, gets out there and she starts running the other way. And so every time around, I'm kind of moving over because she's you know, running the other way. And so is everybody else. And of course, everybody's looking at her like, do you seeing how weird this is? And you know, don't you wanna turn around and go the same way the rest of us are going? And so I just do it and I thought, well, I'm not gonna make a big deal of it, uh, but yeah, that's weird. She's really out of step with everybody else. So then I realized though, keep running, and a couple other people are going that way. This is a true story. This, this was really interesting, you know? And so then a couple other people are going the same way she is. And then the guy in front of me turns around and starts going that way. And the next thing you know, I'm one of the only people going the way I'm going. And I'm thinking, well, the world has gone crazy this morning. You know, what is the matter with all these people? And then I look at the wall and I realize we are supposed to be going that way. I didn't look, I just came in, I started going the way everybody else was going, a true story. So then I just sort of sheepishly turn around and go the other way too, you know? That's like Christians. That lady was like a Christian in our culture. She's going the way things were designed to be. What you believe is important in life, the way you think life is supposed to live, to be lived, because you get it from the Bible, from the author of life and truth and beauty and everything that matters in life, you're actually playing this game the way it's supposed to be played and nobody else is playing this game the way it's supposed to be played. This game isn't supposed to be played about oppressing each other treating each other badly, uh, get as much money as you can and put the other players out of business. That is not the way this game is supposed to be played, God says, and yet, how many of us jump in and just start going around the way the game is played? That lady is like a Christian, walking a different walk in the world. We're on the same track, but she's obviously got a different goal than the rest of us had. I want you to think about that image, think about that metaphor as we talk about what does it then look like? How then do we play the game that we wanna play? The scriptures just fit so perfectly, and this is just one of many. This is not our text, but as I was reading through 2 Corinthians, oh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I thought, I thought this is exactly uh, what we're talking about. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, Christians, in an unbelievably secular place. I mean, Corinth was renowned for uh, just the worldliness of the culture. He says, though we live in this world, we do not wage war the way the world does. In other words, even though we're in this game, we are not playing the game the way everybody else is playing it. Even though we are in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Well, that's what Jesus did. If you think about it, how do you conquer the Roman Empire? Well, politically, that's not how they did it. Militarily, that's not how they did it. Uh, seizing the reins of, of power in certain areas, that's not how they did it. In other words, his point is, is that it, we, we did and they did things God's way and we do not play the game the way the world plays the game. And so this is a really biblical concept. So let's start looking at how should Christians be involved in politics? What does it look like? How are we going to go play the game? And Jesus talks about this, and this is our text. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 has all kinds of similes and metaphors about what the kingdom of God is. And I want you to think about the kingdom of God as being the body of Christ followers, the church, okay? So those people in the world who are following Christ, that's the kingdom of God. So what does Jesus say those people and that church is like? He told them another parable. By the way, here's what he doesn't say it's like. 
He doesn't say the kingdom of God is like a nuclear bomb that goes off and absolutely obliterates all of the enemy. We could have said that, God has plenty of power, but all of these metaphors, and I'm just gonna give you these two, are describing the kingdom of God describe a radically different way of engaging in the world. So he told them this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all your seeds, and it is T90, little seed, and tastes like mustard. When it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and purchase in it, uh, perch in its branches. So a small thing, kingdom of God is a small thing that turns into an overpowering thing. Then he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Are you hearing the idea of subversive in this? You're not hearing the idea the kingdom of God is like a great army that's gonna come into the world and, and tear things up. That's, by the way, that's a Muslim eschatology. Now, I don't say that to be critical, that is a Shiite Muslim eschatology. We're gonna get enough Muslims and uh, the Mahdi's gonna come back and Jesus is gonna be with him and we are just gonna go throw down with the rest of the world and defeat all the unbelievers. That's not a Christian eschatology. That's not a Christian idea of how this plays out, how this game ends. Christian idea is more like, think of yourself as yeast, and while nobody notices what's going on, you're going to affect everything in this world. It's a very subversive way, but it's also an irreversible change. Have you ever figured out how to get yeast out of the dough once it's in the dough? You can't get the yeast out of the dough, and that's the way the kingdom of God is. It's subversive and it can't be undone. Jesus said this about Christians themselves. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, its essence, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by people. So are you getting the idea from Jesus in this context, we're playing a different game and sure enough, it sounds like we're gonna play the game a different way. It doesn't, I don't see anything here that says power and authority and overcoming and coercing. I, I'm not hearing any of that language when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. And so we're going to do this, we're gonna play a different game and we're gonna play it in a different way. And to do that, I wanna introduce a concept to you. I wanna propose this for you to think about but I wanna think about how politics works. Let's just talk about America, even though this is, I believe this is really true throughout history and throughout the world. And here's a key idea. The idea that politics is downstream from culture. Now, some of you out there are saying, hey, wasn't it Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart that said this? Yes, it was, but he does not endorse this program. This is not a political statement. I just think it's a very clever way to express something that I do think is true. The idea that politics is downstream from culture. What does that mean? First of all, there's no doubt that politics can affect the culture, but politics is not the driver of culture. Laws that are made are not the drivers of culture. For example, I'll give you a great example, even though maybe uh, a little bit controversial, but my point is not controversial. My point is simply this, mask mandates. Mask mandates are by their nature political, they're rules, they're coercive. And again, I'm not making a political statement about that, I'm just observing what's true. Mask mandates are mandates, they are coercive. And yet, you may see compliance, but you don't see people necessarily buying into it. Masks have not become, even after, what, a year or so of mask mandate, have not become an integral part of people's culture. In fact, what you're seeing now, and what I'm trying to explain about this is to say that what you see now is people rebelling against the mandates. That makes sense? Our, our country isn't together on this. And so my point is, Mandates are coercive, but they don't necessarily change the culture. 
They can drive compliance, but they can't drive agreement. That makes sense? So politics matters, laws matter, but culture is upstream. Culture influences politics far more than politics influence culture. For example, if you're a politician, and, and if you just think about the history of politics in America, you're gonna see that there have been some bold leaders, but not as bold as you think. Because the bold changes that don't have broad cultural support get undone. The changes politically that last are the ones that have the force of cultural consensus behind them. And so think about leaders. When you get a political leader, and if you've read much political history of, of say, America, this is true everywhere, though, what you'll find is, is leaders don't want to get too far out in front of people. That's why we take opinion polls all the time. In America, politicians don't move without opinion polls. Now, I'm not saying to you that politicians are so spineless that they only do what people want. That's not my point, but my point is this, you will not see politicians doing something that goes broadly against the cultural consensus because that will not last, it will be undone. Culture drives politics. Make sense? Is that believable? Cultural consensus has more to do with what laws get passed than the culture is reflecting the politics of the moment. Politics are involved with coercion, and I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. I just mean they are, by nature, coercive. They don't pass laws that say, uh, stop at stop signs if you want to. But it's optional. It's not optional, it's coercive, right? And so it's coercive, and coercion, by its nature, deals with indoctrination. In other words, controlling your behavior. Culture is a persuasive force. Culture has to do with things like peer pressure rather than you're going to go to jail unless you do this. So cultural forces are more, uh, basically more persuasive and more transformative. And so you actually change people's minds rather than just changing their behavior. Once you change minds, you will eventually change behavior, okay? I'll probably beat that to death. But it's an important concept that the politics are at the end of this process, not at the beginning of this process. Culture is at the beginning. Belief systems, that's another way to think about it. Your view of the world, what you think is important, what is worthy, etc. For example, let's go back to our monopoly game. If your goal is to buy up all the properties and put everybody out of business and that's how you win the game. You're going to make decisions and act out in certain ways. If your goal is different, if your goal is to make sure nobody leaves the game and we all have fun, you will play the game very differently, won't you? So the, the worldview, your goals, what you think this game is about, very much affects the way you go about playing the game. Which leads me to the interesting question. How are Christians playing the game of culture in America? If indeed culture is the place to affect change, if minds are what needs to be changed, how are Christ followers doing in influencing the culture? Let's see. This is, a, uh, and I'm just gonna throw out a, a variety of measurements there's tons of info out there. I'm using Gallup and Pew and one Barna chart, I think. So I'm trying to give you a broad sense of what's going on here. This is very interesting because two key statements, and again, these are indicators. I'm not telling you that all these are terrible Christians or they're all sinners or whatever's happening. What I'm saying is there's an interesting point here is it's pretty clear that the culture is not becoming more like us. In fact, it appears statistically we are becoming a little more like the culture. So it appears that Christians are not that salty, right, in this culture. And I wanna look at it 
and say what is happening about that because there's a key idea in this. So first, Christians, here's the statement. Christians have a responsibility to evangelize others, to share your faith, to tell the gospel. Interesting thing about this is the people that disagree with that statement, the Christians that disagree, 54% disagree that Christians should evangelize. They should share their faith. The other statement, Good works will result in you going to heaven. Interesting thing about that is, you've got, what, 55% of Christians that agree with that. And so, when you think about that, you have, first of all, that division in and of itself amongst what Christians believe, that's a problem, but to believe two things that go completely diametrically opposite of biblical Christianity would tell you you're probably not going to have, you may be running the same direction as all the other runners at the Y, okay? This is an interesting chart, and the part I want you to look at, this is in Europe, and it was just too interesting to me, and I thought, oh, this is fascinating. Look at this part. Church attending Christians. Now, you got non-practicing Christians. Of non-practicing Christians, you basically have three-fourths that believe in other gods or no God. These are non-practicing Christians, meaning they say they're Christian, but they don't believe in the God of the Bible. They believe in some other gods. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know you could do that. The church-attending Christians, here's the really interesting part. I know you're looking at it and going, oh, Terry, thank goodness, two-thirds of them do believe in the God of the Bible. One-third of the church-attending Christians don't believe in the God of the Bible. They either believe in no God or other gods. If you stop and think about that for a minute, you'd say, once again, not that salty. You know, that's not a, a unified force and so if you look at the culture and you say, I don't see them, you know, because you, what you saw in the first couple of centuries is the Roman Empire at one point begins to turn. Here, it doesn't look like our culture is turning. It looks like it's following its own worldview right down the spiral. These stats say something important to me. And what they say to me is that Christians are not reflective of traditional biblical views and biblical understandings. So the idea of what people think a Christian is has changed and varies greatly. And it's not a view that seems to be impacting our culture. One other. Before I get to that, let me give you just some other stats. In America, 75% of people identify as Christian. This is not on this chart, sorry. I'm just gonna give you some data. Just to finish up what I've been talking about. 75% of Americans identify as Christians. One third of them say their faith impacts their life in a significant way. One third. So, you're starting to see, ah, oh, I kinda see where maybe the disconnect is here. Pew Research said that 54% uh, of Christians attend church a few times a year or less. 54% of all those people that identify as Christian, that's three-fourths of America, 54% of them attend church a few times a year or less. So you see where these stats are going and you start to see why, how, how are Christians playing this game and why does it not seem to be having any effect on the culture? The next generation, this is, a, this is a survey about teens, and I'm talking about church attendance, does your faith affect your life, do you read the Bible? These are measurements around the issue. I can't measure people's hearts, but I can see the outcome. As James said, show me your faith by what you do. And so these measurements would indicate to me that faith is not a meaningful part of a lot of Christians' lives. So what do you think is gonna happen in the next generation? Well, I think they're not gonna read their Bible very much. And so you see that a quarter of Christian young people might read their Bible once a week. That is not a sustainable, transferable faith. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know here. 
That is not a sustainable, transferable faith. That is a faith that is going to dissipate over time, not strengthen over time. So think about what's happening. We've decided that the way we're gonna play this game is not through the traditional lever, levers of power. That we realize, and Jesus realized, that culture is transformative. Changing people's minds and hearts is transformative, not coercive. It is multi-generational. Your behavior, what you, the way you behave today is gonna to have very little effect on future generations, but what you believe and the purpose of your life and your life goals and what you're about is very transferable from generation to generation. This Christianity in America today, by and large, according to the stats, is not a sustainable, transferable thing. So if culture is upstream of politics and Christians are not being very salty in the culture, then what do you think is happening at the back end of this process? exactly what you see happening. All kinds of laws that Christians go, wait a minute, we don't like this. This isn't what we believe. This is coercive. This is ungodly. We don't believe in euthanasia. We don't believe in uh, marginalizing people. Think about all the things that are happening and Christians are being so polarized against our government. That battle was lost way upstream. That's the wrong place to be involved in the political process. The place to be involved is at the mind-changing worldview culture level, and that is not able to be influenced by people who, are, who look a lot like the culture. Does that make sense? If it sounds like I'm beating you up, I'm really not trying to. I just wanna confront the facts. Facts are, let's not get frustrated about the political process because that, that process is just the end. We need to get to the headwaters of that process. And to affect the headwaters, we have to change hearts and minds. And to do that, we have to be authentic about what we believe. And here's the crux of that, in my view, is the idea of salvation and discipleship. So if we are going to be salt in the world, if we are going to be leaven in the loaf, if we are going to affect the world in a subversive way, then we need more than a status change called salvation. For some time, in the early church, it was not even thought of that you could be saved and not act like Christ. That, I mean, it's not a biblical idea. It wasn't a part of the early church at all. They just thought the way you did this Christianity thing is when you were saved, meaning when you surrendered to Christ, you followed Christ, you became like Christ, you did what Christ did, you said what Christ said, and you became like Christ. Passages like this, this is Paul telling the Ephesians how to live out their faith. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. When you read passages like that, you realize, whoa, they did not envision the idea of being a Christian, but not being like Christ. Theologically, you call this justification, meaning I wanna follow Christ God says you've been transferred from death to life. You've been saved. You've been regenerated. But my life is not going to change at all. That was not an option. It has become an option. We've separated the idea of justification, being right with God by placing my faith in Jesus Christ, from sanctification, which is the process of becoming holy, it's the process of becoming like Jesus Christ. 
When you make those two things separate, then you can, quote, be saved without becoming like Christ. Is that a biblical idea? It's not even slightly a biblical idea. But is it an idea that is, for quite some time, has been prevalent in Christian culture? The idea that I want you to be saved and then you might wanna clean up your life later, that would be good. Now, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by being like Christ. We're saved by grace. But it's a grace that not only deals with the penalty of sin, it deals with the power of sin because we have a mess, we have a mission. We're saved not just to say, hey, I got that going for me, and when I die, I'm going to heaven. It's kind of like having a Sam's card. You know, I don't know if I'm gonna go this week, but if I want to, I can, right? And it's like Christianity is salvation. It's like, hey, I'm not gonna make a Caddyshack reference here, but it is overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelming me. And those of you that have seen that movie know what I'm talking about. But the point is, is that the idea of salvation then just becomes a get out of hell free card. But it doesn't really have an effect on my life. Problem with that is that Christ's great commission to the church, he gave us a purpose, and what is that purpose? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I taught you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Obviously, the mission of the church has a lot to do with discipleship. Discipleship is just a word that we use of walking the path to get closer to Christ, to become more like Christ, more like Christ in my thoughts, more like Christ in my affections, my emotions, and more like Christ in my deeds and what I do. And so this splitting those two things apart has really taken us away from biblical Christianity. And what it's really done is it's made us ineffective. Because if you're standing around in a, in a group of people in the world and the only difference between you and them is that you have a get out of hell free card and they don't, is not going to affect the culture at all. It's not going to have any impact on the culture. That's not how the Roman Empire was, quote, conquered by Christians. It was conquered by Christians who were going a different direction and they were doing something very different and it had a very subversive effect on the Roman Empire. This is the scary part of this. And this lesson is not really so much about our failures as it is about explaining if we're going to go about being part of the political world and we accept that the Bible wants to do it in a different way, that means that we need to be different people. This is the scariest passage in the Bible to me. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What, what is Jesus saying? It's, it's kind of like the great theologian, Forrest Gump. Christians are as Christians do. And I'm not saying you're saved by what you do. I'm just saying, how would you know a real Christian? They're not playing the game the same way everyone else is. Does that make sense? That's a way of saying they don't think the way everybody else thinks. They don't make the same decisions everybody else makes. They have radically different opinions about the value of life the dignity of humanity, how people should be treated, how to be faithful with each other. They don't hold grudges. They aren't greedy. They don't gossip a lot. Do you hearing all these biblical injunctions? It's like this is what it looks like when you begin to live it out. That kind of Christian is pretty salty. In other words, that kind of faith has a huge impact on the culture a huge impact on the culture. One of my favorite quotes, this is from John Wesley. This church is in the Wesleyan tradition. You'll find this quote from uh, John Calvin and just pretty much anybody you wanna look at because this is just as biblical as it gets. But in his uh, tome on a plain account of Christian perfection, and when he says perfection, he doesn't mean you never make a mistake. What he means is maturing Christians as you follow Christ. Here's what he said. In the year 1729, 
I began not only to read, but to study the Bible as the one, the only standard of truth and the only model of pure religion. Therefore, or hence, I saw in a clearer and clearer light the indispensable necessity of having the mind which was in Christ. That's a quote from the scriptures. And of living or walking as Christ also lived. That's a quote from the scriptures. In other words, what does Christian faith look like? It looks like thinking the way Christ thought and living the way Christ lived. And he said, even of having not some part only, but all the mind which was in Christ, and of walking as he walked or living as he lived, not only in many or in most respects, but in all things. And this was the light wherein at this time I generally saw religion. In other words, to me, this is Christianity, he said, as a uniform following of Christ, an entire inward and outward conformity to our master. John Wesley nailed the biblical idea of what it looks like to be a Christian. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear out of this, and that is, oh no, if I'm a Christian, I can't sin, I can't make mistakes. I'm, I've gotta do everything perfectly. That's not the point at all. That's not even slightly true. It's not a biblical idea at all. Grace and God's forgiveness is a ever new mercies every day. The difference is this, where are you headed how, what is your goal in the game? I mean, you can say I'm a Christian and go play Monopoly the same way everybody else plays Monopoly. That's not gonna have any effect on the game at all. So the question is not how good are you at playing the game? The question is what is your goal in playing the game? Are we becoming like Christ? Does God's revelation to us, we call that the New Testament, is that our roadmap for how we're going to follow Christ and be like Christ? If so, the culture will change. If so, we will impact the world because Christians throughout history, when they've changed the world, that's how they've changed the world. They haven't changed the world by being relevant, although we wanna speak in the terms and ways that the, that the culture understands. There's nothing wrong with that. But being like the culture is not a prescription for changing the culture. That makes sense? This is why those stats look the way they do. And those stats looking the way they do are why the culture isn't getting more Christian. And the fact that that culture looks like it does is why politics is where it is today. That's the chain that I wanted to make. So if you're a Christian, what then, how do you play the game? Well, let's not start at the end at politics. Let's attack those stats a little bit and say, do I look different than the world? Am I actually authentically living out my faith? If so, it's gonna to begin to change this culture. It has before and it will now because this culture isn't monolithic. It's not like everybody living, the, living your best life now, you know, out there, like get rich, get ahead, at, and if, so, if necessary, at somebody else's expense. Most of the people you know are not confident. Most of the people you know who are believing what the culture believes and they're the culture warriors and doing all those things, they're not confident and their lives aren't going that well. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is why we will change the culture. They're not happy. They are a bunch of lemmings. Well, that sounded accusatory. Okay, <laughs> they're not a bunch of lemmings. They're a big old herd all going the same direction. And everybody's like, why are we going this way? I'm going this way, you going that way? Well, I must be okay then, and nobody's happy. This culture is sick. You, I mean, come on, look at our culture. Look at the drug use, look at the suicide rate, look at Americans. Do these people look happy to you? No, they're not. Then along come some Christians and say, there's another way to play this game. And you know what? I don't like bad circumstances either, but I'm joyful. I'm playing a completely different game. I've got a certainty about life that you don't. In other words, go live out our faith. Believe me, it's powerful. Those people are hungry. They're not happy. And it will make a difference. And sure enough, John Wesley, let me just tell you the rest of his story. John Wesley, as an individual, living out this faith, was used by God. He's not the only person that did it, but 
These Methodist societies, these Bible studies, these small groups that he started, literally changed religion in England. Completely changed religion in England. You think, really, one guy, what did he do? That's what he did. He started living out his faith. And then other people said, ooh, we wanna do that too. Well, good, come over, we'll study our Bible and we'll hold each other accountable, we'll go live out our faith. And they were happy. And the rest of the culture said, that, that's what we want. That's Acts 2 in the early church. What did they do? Did they go to the fax machines and start writing their congressman? No, they didn't. They just began to live out their life and everybody else said that those people are playing the game in a better way. That's what we're about. So, takeaways from this. We've got politics at the end. We wanna play a different game, but we're gonna be involved in the political world. The culture's upstream, we wanna influence the culture. How do you influence the culture? We do it by being authentically who Christ called us to be. We're not just saved, we're in the family business. We are, as Romans 8:28 says, all things were, this is really powerful, all things work together for good, those, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God's purpose for you and for me is nothing other than to become more and more like Christ. And that's what's gonna change the culture. That's what's gonna change the political environment. So what are the takeaways? A disciple of Christ, the, key, the real key here because I want you to think about politics more holistically is really where I'm going with this, is the way you're gonna play the game is don't narrow your, your focus down to just the political process. We're very interested in the cultural process as well. We're very interested in the faith formation process, the idea of discipleship. All those things are going to affect politics. Don't let somebody kid you that it's all about voting, which is good. We should vote because we can. It's all about giving money to causes. We should give money to causes that further God's kingdom, that help the oppressed, that do great things in the world. But saying this is how you play this game, is like, no, that's not the only way you play this game. In fact, we've got a really radically different way of playing this game. And it starts with our faith being lived out. A disciple of Christ will be a change agent anywhere you go. And I don't mean by that, that, oh, you've gotta just live so well and be so good that everybody falls down and says, how do you float two feet above the earth? No, that's not what I'm talking about. You start playing the game differently, you start running in the different direction than everybody else, believe me, they will notice. And at first, they will think you're weird. And then they'll tell you, turn around and run the other way, but if you persist, at the end of the day, everybody's gonna be running the same way you are. That is the way this works because our God is powerful. So here are some things that you don't think about as political environments. One is home. Those statistics about the next generation, I mean, are huge. What is the single best thing you can do with your faith? Pass it on, not just to your neighbors, certainly to your neighbors, but to your children. Pass this faith on to the next generation. You need to let them see how you see the world, how you're gonna play the game. As Joshua said at the end of the book of Joshua back in 1400 BC, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In other words, this is the game we're gonna play. This is where we're going. Huge. If you are a homemaker, if you are a parent, if you are forming children, if you are a teacher, you're part of this process of transmitting faith. I know that if you're a teacher in the public school, you can't say, hey, guess what we're gonna do today, kids? I'm gonna give you my Christian testimony. Yeah, I understand that that's probably gonna get you fired, but you can be who you are and no one can stop you from that. And believe me, kids catch who you are. The most influential teachers are influential because of who they are and the interest they show in the kids. Nobody ever said, my favorite teacher is the one that taught me differential equations because differential equations are just so interesting. Actually, I might have said that, but bottom line is nobody says that. What they say is, this is my favorite teacher, they really took an interest in me and I've never forgotten what they said, never forgotten that they believed in me and I kind of want to be like them. Uh, media, media is the big cultural influencer. 
for us, various forms of media. I'm not just talking about the news, but you think about it. When you got a bunch of, not lemmings, a bunch of people in a herd all going the same way, how do you keep them going the same way? Somebody's gotta constantly be telling them, oh, this is definitely the way to go. This is definitely the way to go. Media, and I'm not saying we need media that goes out and, and all of a sudden tells a different story. I'm saying you need Christians in media to bring a Christian view of how to play the game into media. We need more Christians employed in media and just begin to leaven the loaf. You're saying, well, Terry, I can't change it unless I'm the CEO of the company. Don't kid yourself. Trust what God has said. We are leaven in the loaf and it will spread and ideas will spread. Uh, education, huge. Because if you think about it, the only way to keep this cultural idea going it's sort of like the emperor who has no clothes. Remember that story? If you don't, you should look it up. So emperor has no clothes. Basically, everybody kind of knows that, but everybody's afraid to say that. Wait, does that sound like modern day America? Yes, it does. Everybody kind of knows this is crazy. This is crazy. You think this is crazy? Oh, I don't think this is crazy. <laughs> no way. I think the emperor's clothes look great. The emperor's nude. What are you guys talking about? The only way to keep that game going is to indoctrinate the next generation into thinking that way. And I think that Christians in education is really, really important. I know a lot of times we say, Christian teachers get out of education, it's such a terrible place. I understand it's a terrible place, it's a mission field, but I believe that that loaf needs to be leavened as well. Uh, politics, political office, we're not gonna play the game the same way. I don't think we need to get Christians into local and state, which by the way, ultimately will be more important than federal. That's my opinion, you may disagree. But getting Christians into those offices so we can pass different laws that are Christian laws. That's not actually the reason. The reason is the same as any other occupation and that is to bring a different way of looking at life and a different way of playing the game. And believe me, it will affect everybody else around us. The text, for this is, and the prescription for how we're gonna interact is to be leaven in the loaf. We are going to be those subversive change agents. How? By being authentic followers of Christ who become more and more like Christ and just say to everybody, that's an interesting way to play the game. How's that working out for you? And trust me, it isn't working out well at all. I actually have a little different goal that I'm headed at. And I think you're gonna find that the gospel is powerful. It's compelling, it always has been and it still is today. So how do Christians go about politics? Christians go about politics by not focusing on the laws that get passed, although I say vote for laws that are godly laws, that are good laws, that build people up, that don't tear people down. I'm all for that, but don't put your hope in that. Let's go actually change minds, change hearts, change actions. That's lasting change. Question? Yes. The, the question is, in order to change the culture as a Christian, how do you navigate what the culture says you must do or you should be doing if you are, quote, actually a Christian? A lot of society says you are not Christian unless you do specific things. Yes, that's a great question. How do you navigate the expectations that the culture has of a Christian. Ignore them completely. <laughs> I absolutely mean that. Ignore it completely. I can't believe you're a Christian. Jesus loved everybody. How can you possibly say that X is not the way to live? Ignore it. Why in the world would you let public opinion poll tell you how to live out the authentic faith that God has told you to live. I, I, and I, I'm not trying to be glib, I really mean ignore it. And you know, how can you do that? Jesus loved everybody, how could you possibly do this? It's like, you should read the Bible with me. Jesus is not who you apparently think that he is. He does love everybody, but that's not love. He loved you enough to tell you the truth. In other words, just, I really would say, seriously, don't let that get you revved up. I mean, really, I'm gonna, 
I'm really gonna try to meet your expectations of what a Christian is and you're not even a Christian and you really don't care. That game is a control game. I mean, you know this, right? That's a control game. And the idea there is I have these certain expectations and by the way, they happen to align with my political beliefs. Oh my goodness, isn't that coincidence? And if you're a good Christian, you'll do this. Other Christians will tell you that too. If you're a good Christian, you'll believe this. The only good Christian is the one that believes what God said. And so that should drive all of us back to the word of God, which is God's revelation to us. When we do that, we not only will be authentic, we will be united. So I would say ignore that. Uh, don't, don't put any mind whatsoever. You Remember what Paul said to the Galatians? He's writing a letter to the believers in Galatia. That's a whole region, a bunch of churches. And he said, am I now trying to please men or God? If I were trying to please men, I would not be preaching this gospel. But we have been given the gospel of truth and so we speak what God has told us to speak. And that's really what it comes down to. Whose opinion do I really care about here? I care about people, but I won't be manipulated by their opinion. So that's a great question. So living it out. I know that you're gonna say, gosh, I was hoping you were gonna come up with some political strategy and legislative agenda for next year. Yeah, that's, that's not the game that Jesus played. And as long as we continue to play that game, that that's where we put our hope, now, don't hear me saying don't vote. Next time we're gonna talk about what is the role of being in a party? What is the role of voting? What is the role of using those political levers? But that's not what really changes the world. Countries come and countries go. Political systems come and political systems go. The only thing you can be sure of is that the governments of the nations of the world right now will not be here forever. What actually changes things are people like John Wesley, like you, like me, who authentically live out their faith and trust in the power of God to change this culture. And that's why I wanna end with the key, key idea, uh, and that is from one of my, the people that just captures biblical ideas really well. Mother Teresa was a Catholic, which means that there were some things she believed that were not biblical ideas. But there are a lot of things that she captured that were fundamentally, that really mattered. This is probably my second favorite quote from Mother Teresa. God does not demand that I be successful, God demands that I be faithful. When facing God, results are not important, faithfulness is what is important. This is us when we say, look, we have to change this culture because there's so much injustice. I am very sympathetic to that. I think Christians are very compassionate. It's like we really want things to change because not just because of our preferences, this is hurting people. I mean, there are a lot of people being hurt in our world and we want that to stop. We want God's justice. We want God's healing. We want people to do right. We want people to be treated with dignity as image bearers of God. Our, our compassion is well, well placed. But when we take it on ourselves and say, okay, we're gonna have to become political and we're gonna have to enact laws and we're gonna have to make this happen. We now have become more interested in success than faithfulness. And this is the turning the world upside down, down thing is, we aren't called to be successful. God will do that. We're called to be faithful. And faithful looks like what John Wesley said is, I wanna be more and more inward and outward like Jesus Christ. We do that, you will get success thrown in because God will make it so. If we aim at success, I'm afraid that we'll lose our faithfulness. And that's kind of what you tend to see. Christians that have taken the approach of, I'm gonna use the world's method to achieve God's ends, typically end up losing their faithfulness. The Christians that change the world historically are the ones that have been unswervingly faithful to what God told them to do and then look what God does. The things that we will achieve are not things that we set out to achieve. Mother Teresa talked about this. It's interesting, you wanna talk about criticizing other Christians. Mother Teresa was uh, caring for the poor, Calcutta, and 
she, I know this is gonna sound crazy, you think, oh, Mother Teresa, short little munchkin, and she's so nice, and who could ever be mean to Mother Teresa? Oh my goodness. She got so much criticism in the world from Christians and non-Christians alike saying, you are not doing enough for poverty, you're just working here in Calcutta, you should, could be doing way bigger things, you are not being very successful, you're gonna live your whole life and these people are still dying and all this is happening. And she is being so criticized for the way she's going about taking care of the poor and the dying and the sick. It's like, are you kidding me? But she was, and that is her response. She said, I wasn't called to be successful by your terms or by anybody else's terms. I was just called to be faithful. And I think that's the prescription for us. As we think about engaging in politics, as upside down as it sounds like, because Jesus said the kingdom of God, you don't need power. You just need to be leaven. You just need to be salt. We just need to realize if we will be faithful, we will be successful. So as we go about engaging in our world, I really would urge us to think more about let's emulate Christ. Let's be like Christ. And you may say, gosh, well, that may make me a better person and influence a few people around me, and it may be a better thing for my witness for Christ, but is that really gonna change the national scene in America? Yes, it will. And that's where you have to have faith. That's how the Roman Empire became Christian. That's how John Wesley completely changed England, is one person at a time being faithful to live out their lives in a Christ-like way. That's the game we're playing, and trust me, it is the game that will change. It has changed the world, it will change the world, and it will change this country. We're gonna play a different game, and we're gonna play it in a different way. Next, what does that mean then when it does come to the political world? And so next week, I'm gonna tell you which political party you should be part of. I'll see you then. <laughs> 